are history or is it we are history oh it could be history it It could be a true crime podcast we're doing this week angela well we're nothing if not bandwagon jumpers john and i've heard that true crime podcasts do pretty well so i thought let's have some of this action we're going to take a very Um, historical perspective on this murder mystery Um, yes, we are. This is a mid-19th century murder mystery. Pretty famous one now, thanks to TV series and books that have been written about it. It is the murder at Roadhill House. 1860. I don't know why I said it like that. Yeah, 1860. Actually, once you get into the detail, it's pretty grim. But uh, until we tell what, people, is, what happened, yes. we can do all that uh, ghosty noises. <laughs> we can be all the yeah yeah yeah, I, I, which is very hypocritical considering what we were saying about Jack the Ripper just a few episodes ago, yes. and now here I am going murder and murder, yes. and you're like a child did yes. die, so I think we should probably not lose sight of that. John, you're very interested in this case, aren't you? Because this case led to you spending a few nights in a hotel with Anne Whittaker. Am I right? True. Before the best-selling <laughs> book about this case, the murder at Roadhill House, uh, came out. Uh, so about 20 years ago, Channel 4 rang me up and said, oh, we're doing a sort of crime detective history series. Uh, we want you to uh, be one of the two people solving the crime. We're going to put you down with a female novelist. We can a luxury hotel. And, oh, right, 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 which female novelist? They said with a female yeah, novelist. Like that. That's what they highlighted well, from her CV. <laughs> and I said, yeah, which female novelist do you have in mind? They said, well, we've got you down with Anne Widdicombe. <laughs> So let, we'll come on to that. Uh, and that's my personal yes. introduction to this story. And trying to be a crime-solving duo with Anne Widdicombe. I mean, Mulder and Scully move over. This murder and this scandal, I think, shines a light on the English society in the mid-19th century, on the class divisions of the time, the sanctity of the yeah. upper-class English home, the hypocrisy within, position of women. It's also very interesting on the sort of history of the detective as we know the detective today. It's very much where it all... Yeah, I think that's where he became a sort of uh, celebrated figure and uh, Dickens Mm. sort of ran with this idea and it's about this time that I think the template of the English country house murder was sort of set down. Yeah. If this murder hadn't happened, would we have Cluedo today? (laughs) That's That's... that's the big question I think we've got to ask. That's That's what all the historians are asking. (laughs) Oh, dear. But, yeah, detectives at this time were seen as very sort of almost mystical. You know, they they had these kind of powers that were really, obviously, that led to later on in the century, your Sherlock Holmeses and your... Yes, yes. You know, around this time was when detectives were first... Yeah, and I think some people felt very ambivalent or quite hostile to the idea of a policeman in ordinary dress going round asking impertinent questions to people of superior social standing. Well, especially because they were working class, right? A lot of these Well, they were sort of upper working sort, class. Sort of, sort of yeah, yeah, Londoners. Yeah, they were sort of former policemen. So yeah. the idea that they had any right to ask a gentleman about his private affairs was uh, mm. considered quite scandalous, which, you know, had which to would... happen in this particular case. Yeah, we'll come on to that, won't we? So the time is 1860. Britain is at the height of its wealth and power. Uh, Queen Victoria mm. on the throne. Palmerston is prime minister. It's the time of Dickens. Darwin, the year before, had published um, The Origin of the Species. species. The very first football match was played in 1860. Um, Uh, Sorry, it's yawning. (laughs) Big Ben struck in 1859. (laughs) Elsewhere in the world, Abraham Lincoln's just been elected president. I think that's going to go very well. Um, (laughs) Italian unification is happening. Napoleon III rules over France. Uh, We did did him under the Siege of Paris. We did, Siege of Paris, yes, yes. Yes. But on the morning of June the 30th, in the village of Rode, 
on the Somerset Wiltshire border. That's Road R O A D. Have you? It's I tiny. have. There's, there's, it is tiny, but there's a comedian, Jared Christmas, who lives in Road or near Road, certainly, and he runs a gig in a in the village pub. And it's wow! Lovely. Oh, there's. Sep- is there only one pub there now? There used to be several. When I then, then, was... Well, I say the village pub. I think there might yeah. be several, but he runs a gig in one of them anyway. Well, I spent a week in Road trying to solve this crime. Of course, yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> And I'll tell you what happened. When uh, on the first day of filming, I thought, mm. right, my job is to be funny. That's why they've asked me to be amusing and entertaining and lighthearted. Are you sure that and wasn't then... Anne Whittacombe's job? <laughs> well, as well. <laughs> <laughs> We're laughing different ways. Um <laughs> But the host of the show, the guy who presented the show, said it's the morning of the 30th of June. And they hear, what's the gag? What's the gag? And a child's body is found, his throat slashed, stuffed in the latrine. That comedy balloon just goes... Oh, my like, God. They want me to be you booked to gag my stuff for this case. So I was like immediately on the back foot and thinking, OK, well, that sounds really grim and awful. I was the father of a... You know, a couple of small kids. And oh, the God. idea of this kid being taken to his cot and his throat slashed was um, horrific. Oh. So this is what happened on the morning of the 30th of June. The four-year-old was missing from his cot. Um, right. His nursemaid, uh, Elizabeth Goff, woke at dawn, she said, noticed him missing. and presumed She slept been... in the same room as him. That's right. She looked right, across, that's... saw that yeah. he, uh, he was gone and presumed he'd been taken into the bed of his mother, Mrs. Kent. So this is the Kent yeah. family of Roadhill House. That's what she said. Yeah. And when the house you know, generally awoke, it became clear that the boy was nowhere to be seen. He wasn't with his mother. A window was opened downstairs. The shutters had been moved. And it seemed the child had been stolen away or possibly worse. What? So the haughty master of the house was Samuel Kent, uh, he, a factory he, inspector. They, yes, they, he, they weren't well liked, the family, were they? Or particularly Samuel Kent in the, in the village because... He was he, he was a sort of early health and safety inspector, wasn't he? Of the he, was local a, he was a factory inspector. He worked for the government. Um, but he was a, you know he was a very haughty and austere yeah. uh, gentleman of the village. He, you know, prevented locals fishing in the stream. But also, he didn't he prevent like so part of his role as a government inspector of the factories was to prevent children that were too young from working. And yes. of course, what that meant to working class families was losing an income, right? So, yes. Although to our, our 21st century minds, that's a good thing, isn't it? Stop the children working. He wasn't liked for that. They wouldn't let my kid work 14 hours in the mill. What a bastard. <laughs> yeah. I know, that's weird, isn't it? But yes, he was uh, resented by the locals for stopping mm. them working. He'd also, you know, stopped them taking falling apples. Well, he was known as a bit of a... Well, well there were rumours about infidelity, weren't there? Because his... So his wife, Mrs. Kent, she was the second Mrs. Kent. Yes. And the original Mrs. Kent had died. Yes. And she was the governess, wasn't she? Of to his, his children, Two yes. children from his first marriage. So, yeah, that sort of smacks of a little bit of Victorian impropriety there, doesn't it? Absolutely. In fact, he'd had many children with the first Mrs. Kent, many of which died in infancy. I think four or five died. I and mean, even, you know, with Victorian child mortality rates, that was very high. Uh, but the ones that survived were still living with him from the first marriage. That was Constance, who was 16, and William, who was 15. It's quite interesting that even the upper classes had such a high child mortality rate. Something you sort of think about in the slums, isn't it? But... Well, do you know what? I saw a documentary about this. And uh, working class families had women midwives delivering babies with lots of experience. And upper classes had 
doctors, male doctors, male doctors, and the mortality rate was higher for the male doctors doing it than the local midwives who were very experienced. Isn't and, that interesting? It's yeah. a theme that comes up over and over again. Isn't it? Where <laughs> women have been doing a job perfectly well for centuries, yeah. and then around this time, men come along and go, "Okay, we'll take it from here." But there, is, there may be another reason why this particular family had uh, uh, very high child mortality rates and will will be revealed dun, at dun, the dun. end of the podcast. And it may yes. shine a light on the whole thing. Yes. Uh, the first Mrs. Kent was considered insane. Oh, this, right. Angela, what do you think about that? There seemed to be a lot of insane women around in the Victorian there age. There were. And do you know what? Obviously, at this time, to be a woman meant you had to know your place and you had to not take up too much space and you weren't allowed opinions. And so basically, insanity was a label given to a woman who was in any way disruptive, right? Who had an opinion that people didn't agree with, who were angry. Like you weren't allowed, however justifiably, if you were angry, yes. you were mad, right? And that was um the the bottom line of it and and in a way we still see the remnants of that today i was just thinking as we're recording this we're recording this in the week after dominic cummings yes left downing street right and one of the the sort of um reasons for it happening was him um sort of slagging off carrie simmons boris johnson's girlfriend in text messages in which he called her princess nut nut and right. this is a remnant of this thing, because if you're a woman who's angry, however justifiably, you're mad, you're psycho. You're, you hear it all the time. Like, yeah. oh, she's, yeah. she's just mad. She just doesn't, you know, because she's angry with me, is what they yes. mean. But then it would actually get you locked up it in did. an and asylum. The, Mary Heaton, for example, mm, uh, recently got a blue plaque. It? Yeah, she got yeah. a blue plaque for to acknowledge the fact that she was unjustly locked mm. away in an asylum for... Her life, basically. Well, she she was having... a woman who, in Wakefield, I think it was, in Yorkshire, wasn't it? And she she dared to be angry with a priest. She was a teacher teaching his daughter, a music teacher. Yes. He hadn't paid his bills and she was angry with him. And because she was angry with a priest, she spent the rest of her life, 41 years, in an yes. asylum. She got so exasperated, she spoke out in one of his services, mm. I think, and asked for the money. And mm. uh, being in the position of a clergyman... He was able to, you know, say that she was mad and they locked her up. And that's uh, so the label madness we treat with an awful lot of caution when we talk about women in the Victorian time. Basically, she might have been a slightly uncooperative wife or maybe even she was just a bit pissed off that he seemed to be shagging all the people that worked there. (laughs) Or Angela, she might have been mad. (laughs) Or she might have been mad. Because one of the theories that was developed was maybe the murderer was mad. Maybe well, clearly the murderer was mad. That's the one of the things. Well, when I was presented with this case, when someone kills a four-year-old kid, they're clearly completely off their nut. That is not something that you do because you're going to inherit some money or you've been your marriage has collapsed yeah. and you want to escape. It's the it's the action of a somebody. You're either psychotic insane. or psychopathic. One of those yes, two yes. things. Yes, and um, so yeah. there was a theory that if the mother had been mad, maybe one of the children had inherited this. This was one of the theories banded around. Right. Yes. So the teenager's new stepmother, apparently, which we're talking about, their family. The second Mrs. Kent apparently mm-hmm. treated the children quite badly compared to her own younger children. But there were no shortage of people who had a grudge against Mrs. Kent. As we said, the factory inspectors prevented underage children from working, so people in the village resented the family. The local shoemaker, William Nutt, was a suspect because he had had dealings with the family and had got into trouble, I think, for either for scrumping apples or something. He was one of the people who joined the search for the missing boy. Mm. Whilst Kent himself, you know, the, the lord of the manor, he immediately leapt on his horse and rode off to Trowbridge to get the police. Mm. His journey 
seemed to take longer than it should have done. Because when is... someone went after him, they got there before him. So right. I'm not quite sure what was going on there. It's, it's difficult, isn't it, to go... Because, again, obviously in 1860, you couldn't just phone the police, right? No. When something like that happened. So it is hard to get... Because at first you think, why wasn't he... Because at this point, obviously... They didn't know if he was alive or dead. No body had been found or anything like that. You'd think a father would stay and search. You would think so. But uh, he got straight. But then the other side of that is, well, he went to get the, did he go to get the police to help well, the that, search? That mm. feels like something that would take several hours. You know, your kid's yeah. missing from the bed. I mean, your kid has, his kid did seem to have been stolen away. So I suppose maybe you want to get the force onto it straight away. Yeah. But I don't know. It asks more questions than it answered, really. Uh, yeah. William Nutt, as we say, the local shoemaker, had joined the search. They didn't know they were looking for a body at that point. They thought, you know, somebody yeah. had kidnapped the kid, maybe. And also, but he in... wasn't a baby. He was a child. Like, he could yes, be he was... ambulant. Do you know what I mean? He, he could have run yeah. away from a kidnapper or whatever. So he could be yeah. around. He was coming up to four years old, yeah. Mm. But anyway, William Nutt looked in the outhouse that was used as a privy, and he mm. gazed down the bog, in for anyone the bog. But it was sure, like yeah. a really big old-fashioned thing with a yeah. shelf. And uh, in down there, he saw the body of the child with his mm. throat slashed. He's wrapped in a blood-soaked blanket. Mm. How could this have happened? The house had been locked up at night before. Had an enemy got in during the day and hidden? Mm. Had it been one of the servants? Someone in the family. Maybe. So the house was locked. A window was open. So it suggests that whoever did it had been in the house before the house was locked and then got out. They wouldn't have been able to open the window from the outside. Quite. That was the supposition. I could be a detective, John. You could have been there with me and Anne Whittacombe. We would have made a better TV show, I tell you. <laughs> so for two weeks, the local plod made a very bad job of solving this murder. Mm. And they were really preoccupied with this big footprint that mm. was uh, left just by the door. Well, and turned out that was from one of their own officers who turned up to investigate. <laughs> Hang on, Sarge. Look at this size Hang of on, a boot, hobnail boot. <laughs> it's the same as mine. Yes, you just did that, you idiot. Um, they missed a hidden blood-soaked undergarment hidden in the fireplace and they generally failed to act quickly or decisively or to question the right and also they didn't question people did they because they felt it was impertinent these were upper class a household you know family so the police were lowering class to them so they felt they they felt they had no right to ask impertinent questions such as did you murder your son Um, a bit rude you know. That's because of that, first suspicion fell on the nursemaid, Elizabeth Gott, yeah. because she had not acted on the missing child and she actually contradicted herself uh, when questioned mm. by the police about timings. But, I mean, she would have been distraught, right? obviously, because the baby was in her charge. And the exactly. fact she didn't, you know, they say she didn't act upon the missing child immediately. But I suppose your first assumption would be that child had gone to its mother. Maybe, yes. You know, which yes. is what she said she yes. thought had happened. I mean, I'll just tell you, whilst we're on this bit, this is a bit that I had a discussion with Anne Whittacombe about. We had to reenact the taking of a child from its cot. Right. Uh, and and the, the thing was, wouldn't the child waken up? If a stranger woke up a child, the child would wake up and scream, surely. Yeah. And I said, no, you could pick up a little three-year-old, carry it downstairs, and it would just snuggle into your chest. And I would, yeah. Anne Whittacombe went, no, you couldn't. I went, oh, no, you, my kids, I could, both of those, I carried down the stairs at night and they, they never wouldn't woke wake up. up. No, yeah. you couldn't do that. And I wanted to go... I've got two kids. You've never even had sex, Anne. (laughs) Don't tell me about picking up kids when you're a virgin. John, are you telling me she she ansplained you? She ansplained me very good. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to take the rest of the day off. Thank you very much. Do you know, Anne Whittaker, because I grew up in in Maidstone, so when I was growing up, she was our local MP. So I had my um, A-level certificates presented to me. 
Oh my god! I am Widdicombe. Was she impressed with your German? I doubt it. She probably thought I, you should have I remember not done being, a European I, language. <laughs> I, I didn't know how to, because I didn't want to shake her hand or anything, but I felt like I wasn't a disruptor. So I you knew didn't I didn't like curtsy. her and I knew I didn't. So I just sort of was like, mm, You didn't do a curtsy to, to Lady Anne. <laughs> I didn't do a curtsy to Lady Thank Anne. Thank God for that. Oh, so anyway, God. one of the rumours was that Elizabeth Goff had been in bed with Samuel Kent, or Samuel Kent had been in bed with Elizabeth Goff in the nursery. Ooh. And the child had woken up and seen them in the filthy act. And then Samuel Kent had smothered him to quieten his disgusted screams, accidentally killed him. And so then they staged the throat slashing and the Jesus. body in the privy as a cover up. This was a theory flying around the village. Mm. Why did Kent ride off to Trowbridge instead of join the search? Why did someone following him get there before him? Or was it the man who found the body, William Nutt? No one had thought the child dead at that point, yet he looked down the latrine. I, do, I just, I, mm, it's difficult, isn't it? I just think that if the child had woken up and found his father, the child wouldn't have known what was happening. They could have just quite easily just quite placated a child. You know, yes, exactly. Sorry, just have an argument, go back to sleep. Um, <laughs> I mean, God, if every child that walked in on their parents got murdered, there'd be no children I know. left. <laughs> I did it with my parents once. Oh, my God. Oh, nice. did you? Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Don't want to think about it. I'm shiver shuddering now. <laughs> Um, so public interest in the affair was immense. Speculation, outrage, of course, you know, the whole country was gripped by this murder. And then there was pressure on the Home Secretary to do something about it. So after two weeks, a London detective was sent to the town. Jack Witcher of Scotland Yard. Absolutely. So like we said, we've got here the original template for the country house murder mystery. All the others that came after where the detective gets sent to the country house. Yes. Someone there must have done it. And there were lots of subplots going on, lots of motive, lots of rumoured infidelity. And there's a cruel stepmother. And like we said before, in 1860, these police detectives, they were a new idea. And the skills they had yes. were seen as being so specialist and so almost mystical. Like Dickens yes. spoke of them as if they had these special powers of deduction. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. which then it's a straight line, isn't it, as well from here to your Sherlock Holmes, you, you know, that really took that idea of these special powers and ran with it. The first British detective novel was around this time, was it The Trail of the Serpent by Mary Elizabeth Braddock, which was published the following year? Yes. Uh, I, I mean, Dickens had put Inspector Bucket in Bleak House, which was published mm. a few years before. But the actual, I, the idea of the murder mystery set in the country house, I think this sort of popularised the genre. Yeah. I think Edgar Allan Poe was the first yes. person to have a detective in a novel, wasn't he? Or the first sort of That's right. In America, I think they were a bit ahead of us in this in this regard. Yeah, preceded actual um, detectives in this country. And we should say that the book we both read for this was The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher by Kate Summerskill, yeah. which popularised this story yeah. uh, in the modern age. But even before that book was published, as I said, I was on a Channel 4 show called Crime Team, where I was teamed up with Anne Whittacombe to solve this murder. <laughs> so move over, Jack Witcher. We're going to hear in the second <laughs> half about how I got the tool from Channel 4 to solve this for the exciting new crime drama, O'Farrell and Whittacombe. We'll join you again <laughs> after this break. Hello and welcome back to We Are History, where we are looking at the murder at Roadhill House from 1860. Um, but, you know, the murder, important as it is, what we all really want to know about, John, is what it was like working with Anne Whittacombe on a Channel 4 crime show. 
Uh, well, um, <laughs> this the, was I back wonder at, if it's on YouTube. I want to find it. That's a good point, actually. I didn't I'm even look. I'm going to Google it. Um, all I'll say was the sound man threading the cable down her blouse. The sight of that will stay with me for a very long time. <laughs> I better stay um, with her for a very long time. That's the most action she's ever got. Um, she, um, yeah, she was very, um, very strict about uh, swearing and uh, blaspheming. So uh, everyone was uh, on very on best behaviour. Now I swear like sort of you know as you know anyone else. So yeah. first day uh, we'd be walking backwards down the lane and discussing the murder, and the cameraman was walking backwards and he banged his head on an overhanging branch. He'd be ah fine, fine, fine. Banged my head on a branch. That's absolutely fine. Next day the sound man would sort of be carrying the monitor, drop it on his foot. Gosh. Shoe, shoe, I've dropped it on my shoe. And then on the last day of filming, the sound man went to thread the wire down her front again. And she just had <laughs> got bored with this by now. So she just lifted up her blouse to re- reveal this huge steel reinforced bra. And the entire crew were like, oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> the thing about being careful of swearing around with Anne Whittacombe, I just how dare she demand that people don't have bad language when she's done such terrible things voting against gay marriage voting against women priests all those how thing. dare she worry about you effing and jeffing when she's actually you know evil this is such a big bugbear for me with conservatives that they come from this sort of you know upper class sort of background you know mm. they, they claim to so they're very they'd be a f- shocked if someone's phone went off in the theater or if somebody pushed in a queue and yet leave people on trolleys in hospital corridors or have yeah. homeless people on the streets. That's Let children not rude starve at all. during a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's not right. That's not bad manners at all. You know? No. So, uh, yeah, they're... they're, they're, they're standard. I know. Anyway, I was stuck. Anyway, that's with a Bloody whole other... <laughs> I was stuck with Anne Whittacombe for a week in this hotel. And she wasn't the... The trouble is when you're stuck with someone, mm. you know, you have to sort of make friends with them. So I was polite. You don't and, have to, John. Well... You do never if you're meet, polite. Never meet your enemies. She'd been this sort of bogey figure for me from the 80s, yeah. like Borrow, you know, Doris Karloff. But she was actually, she had a certain humility to her, believe it or not, which came from her Christianity. Very mm. obsessed with faith. And I would have to sit with her and she'd try to discuss the Euro with me. And all the researchers and crew would go, come to the pub, John, we're all going down the pub. And I was thought, I can't, I feel it's too rude to leave Anne Widdicombe on her own at the dinner table after dinner. Uh and uh, for me to leave her and go to the pub, so I stayed there. What sort of manners is that? That's ridiculous you are when I look back. Better man than me. I Talking would... about the Euro with Anne Whittaker. I think I'd want to kill myself. But anyway. <laughs> Um, I got to see Anne Widdicombe uh, wearing jodhpurs on the back of a horse. Anne in jodhpurs, there's a sight. Let's have a moment to think about that. You know, I never crept across the uh, hotel landing and knocked on her door with a bottle of champagne, put it that way. Um... Do you know what, John? <laughs> None of us thought you did until you just said that. Um, but the way this show worked was we were given the evidence incrementally over the right. next few days. So like no... the murder mystery party, yeah. like one of those sort of... Yeah, there was no Wi-Fi Except then, an or... actual child died, let's not Yes, that's the trouble, which made it a bit hard to be funny about it. So yeah, there was no, yeah. no smartphones back then, you couldn't just Google it. Uh, not that I would have cheated. Good, glad to hear it. Um, so yeah, I would sort of eventually get into the pub with a crew and drink about four pints and then kind of struggle down to breakfast the next morning in the hotel... And Anne Whittacombe would walk in at 100 miles an hour, say all the things she'd been thinking about the plot. And she'd made all these notes and she was saying, <laughs> now, William Nutt seemed to have the motive to me. And it's like, whoa, man, let me have my sort of, you know, third coffee before you start <laughs> oh. coming at me. Did you solve the mystery in the well, show? Well, I did think who, I said who I thought it was. Right. I was, it turned out you I was right. right. We'll come to and that, she didn't think it was that person. And did I get any credit from Anne for this? 
did she say, in that case, you must be right about socialism versus capitalism, John? And <laughs> from now on, I will campaign for the Labour Party. No, she did not. Um, but, you know, uh, back in 1860, everyone was a detective. Well, yes, this was a problem, wasn't it? Because detectives were this new thing and they were fashionable. Everyone wanted to be one. And, you know, we didn't have the telly. There was not much else to do. Um, and so this Jack Witcher, while he's trying to carry out this investigation, all the eyes of the press and the country are on him uh, because it becomes this big story, doesn't it? Um, and he's inundated with amateur theories. You know, people just, wait, I think I've... So, I mean, that could never happen today, could it, Twitter? <laughs> um, and so people would write to him. They'd say they'd got the answer to the mystery, they'd had it in a dream, or that the image of the murderer would still be on the retina of the dead child if they just looked in his eyes. You know, all these mad sort of yeah. amateurs. But that still happens today, doesn't it, in murder cases? You get particularly sort of psychics. and Yes, and sometimes after a case, there'll be a lot of... Uh, the, the detectives will get a lot of sticks saying, somebody was told... They were, the police were told it was this man. And uh, what they don't say is, yeah, they were getting about a thousand letters a day from different. Exactly. Someone was yeah. bound to get it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Charles Dickens weighed in. He thought it was Samuel Kent, as did uh. many, many of the villagers. And the, the the family, of course, this poor family that suffered this terrible loss. They couldn't go around the village. They were besieged in their home. People were shouting yeah. out at them whenever they went about. He had to give up his work. Because presumably, um, even if one of them had done it, which yes. We'll come on to that. But if one of them had done it, the rest of the family is still grieving a murdered yes. child in their house, you know. Absolutely. It's... And all the papers are theorising and hinting heavily that it's either uh, um, Elizabeth Goff or it's Samuel Kent or it's the kids, you know. Well, that's, um, that's a story, isn't it? That's a nice salacious bit of yeah. mid-19th century Victorian. They love it. You know, yeah, for yeah. so oppressed, they love a sexy story, right? Exactly. So, first of all, the nursemaid Elizabeth Goff was taken into custody, mm -hmm. questioned, and eventually released. Maybe she had changed her story about timings, etc., because she was covering up an affair with Samuel Kent. Maybe when people lie, it's not because they're the murderer, but it's because they've got other stuff that they uh, that don't they want the cover, public to yeah. know about. Maybe and I mean, it was a common knew. thing, wasn't it, for men of the house to abuse their power and she would have got the stick for it, but yeah. she might not have had a choice. Yeah, he had history on this, you know, he, yeah, had, yeah. Uh, he had a record of it. Maybe Constance knew that the nursemaid was not where she should have been Constance that night. Constance being the oldest daughter. The 16-year-old daughter, yeah. Mm. She knew the nursemaid was not where she should have been that night, so she was able to sneak and take the boy from his cot. And that was maybe why Samuel was delayed on the road to Trowbridge when the boy first disappeared. Maybe he and Elizabeth met under a bridge to get their story straight. This was a theory that was presented to me by one of the detectives who was working on this show I was working on. It's interesting, um, isn't it? That's what happens when you lift the lid on this respectable Victorian. This is family. why we're There's doing this. There's always stuff going this, on. We're, we're just exposing the hypocrisy of the Victorian yeah. house. That's why we're interested in this. Not because it's a gory murder mystery, Angela. I mean, if you've listened to our um, Cult of Jack the Ripper episode where we look a lot at what it was like to be in the slums in the working classes where they were a lot more honest about this stuff you know and yes it was when well, we said it then we have this image of victorians as being these prim and proper but actually the working classes were just getting on with it yeah and it was the upper classes had these sort of false prim notions that led them to all sorts of depravity in reality Absolutely, absolutely. And so the hypocrisy is sort of what yeah. is, is keeping it all together, really. But both of the great detectives in this case, Jack Witcher and both. John O'Farrell, oh. <laughs> um, they came to the conclusion that the murderer was Constance Kent, the 16-year-old elder daughter. 
but there wasn't enough evidence to prove it. There was a missing nightdress, right. and there was a laundry list showed that Constance was one nightdress down, plus uh, the one she'd had on the day of the murder was clean, not worn for a week. So she was one of only two people in the home who had a room of her own. Right. So yes, the brother had one, yeah. Her stepmother wasn't very nice to her and her brother. Yes. We know that. She had run away with her brother before, hadn't she? And she, yes. when she'd run away with her brother, she cut off all her hair. Um, sounds a bit Britney Spears, doesn't it? She cut off all yeah. her hair and she put it down the same privy where they found the yes, body. Yes, that was a big deal for me. I thought that mm. was very indicative of her sort of just hideaway Dispose of the evidence, sort of dispose. go to dispose of the evidence place, yeah. put it down the privy. The missing nightdress is interesting as well. So they would have obviously all their night dresses and laundry would be done by the the laundry maid or whoever. Yeah, and everything would be on a list, and so she was one night dress down. So there is yes. this, and the, and that is significant, is it? Because they, the, she had a clean night dress on. Well, she should have had one on that she'd been wearing for a week according to the laundry list. So that's... Yes. Hmm. Plus they found like a little, not exactly a bra, it's like a little sort of cloth um, thing that went round the, the, the bust of a woman. Uh, and that was found down the privy. Actually, because it seemed to fit Elizabeth Goff, she was originally taken into custody, but actually right. maybe it was belonging to Constance. Witcher hoped to get a confession out of her and he got her on trial. That was the suspicion of Mr. Witcher in the, the suspicion, title of the yes, book. Yes, in the book by Kate Sumskill, yeah. So uh, he yeah. Uh, took her before magistrates, hoping that they would agree to put her on trial. And um, huge turnout in the town. Loads of people shouting at their carriage. Do you do that, Angela? Do you ever get oh, yeah, shout at murderers? Oh, yeah, of course I do. I'm down the Crown Court every other day <laughs> Banging your shoe on the van. You That's bastard. Right. Yeah. Who does that? Who, what? <laughs> Who goes... Who rings up their friend to go, well, they're taking that murderer to court. Should we go down and shout at him? <laughs> Hobbies include shouting at murderers. I don't know. Anyway, they did that back then as well. But yeah. Constance got up in the dock and she was completely convincing that she was innocent. Mm. Uh, there wasn't enough evidence to send her to trial. And so Witch's appeal for a prosecution of Constance was turned down. And he was much criticised for putting a young girl who'd lost her dear little brother through well, such trauma. Well, this is it, isn't it? She's an upper-class girl. He's yeah. already been impertinent by asking questions. Then to yes. accuse this poor, young, 16-year-old girl. Yeah. So on one hand, you had this excitement of the heroic intellect solving the riddle of this murder. But then you've got this police moves, not even in a uniform. He's being underhand. He's being dishonest. He, he shouldn't be prying about the affairs of a gentleman's home and, and looking at his daughter's undergarments. You know, Chuck, in, I mean, can you, the idea that a stranger should go into your daughter's house and go through her undergarment drawer. This was smelling salts time for the Victorians. Absolutely. Solving a murder is one thing, but you don't ask embarrassing questions, John. <laughs> no, absolutely. You know? And then um, when the police did find an undergarment that had blood on it, it was too delicate to talk about. And they just assumed it was menstrual blood, right? They just went, oh, that must be her monthlies. Let's not think about that. All yes, let's just move along. Oh, look it, away. Nothing to see yeah. here. So vital um, evidence. Rather than going, oh, hang on a minute, blood-stained yeah. clothing. Mm, there's yeah. been a murder. <laughs> I know. That's just, uh, they were so crippled by their embarrassment. So then, on a Friday in August, remember the thing happened at the end of June. Friday of August, mm. a man, completely unconnected with the case, walked up to a policeman at a railway station in Buckinghamshire and confessed to the murder. Mm. He was taken to Trowbridge Police Station, huge crowds there, and on Monday morning, he was protesting his innocence. Turned out he was just depressed and he needed attention. He was thinking maybe being hanged for murder would be a better way to end it all. So many people were haunted mm. by this murder that Kate Summerskill 
suggests that he was so haunted by the crime himself and so it's depressed. They offered a solution it. of sorts that is to say I did it. And then it's then it's resolved. Um, it happens a lot, doesn't it? It does. It happens yeah. even today, you know, false confessions and people, but it's people who either, I think, like you say, are so depressed or they've got so wrapped up in a story that they, they've sort of become part of it themselves yeah. somehow in their, you know, not straight thinking mind. Or it's... Um, you know, just psychopaths who want to disrupt. Quite often attention seekers, or as you say, people yeah. who are so desperate to be in the story themselves. But uh, so this person was sort of dismissed because his evidence didn't stand up and he had alibis. And so uh, all mm. the excitement died down very quickly. But Witcher, by the uh, autumn, had been perceived to have failed in the public eye. He was much criticised in the press. This apparent high flyer of Scotland Yard had let them down. Sort of destroyed his career, really, didn't it? This, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yes, you know. the most promising detective from Scotland Yard. Punch magazine, they did a parody about Inspector Watcher of the Defective Police. Oh, clever. You, clever. Don't get satire, you don't get satire like that anymore. Oh, I've seen what they've done there. <laughs> it wasn't a detective police, Angela. It was defective police. Defective police. Quick, get him on the writing those, team for the guys. new fitting image. Quick. Oh, my aching sides. But you know, there were no new leads. Uh, the murder remained unsolved. And Witcher retired early, citing congestion of the brain. Congestion of the brain. Yeah, do you ever get that? All the time. That's my whole <laughs> life is my brain's congested. Just not with knowledge, unfortunately. <laughs> Samuel Kent sold the house and he moved to Wales. Constance was sent abroad to complete her education. And she joined a religious institute in Brighton. She was sent to a finishing school, wasn't she, in... Switzerland well, or somewhere. Oh, yes, that's right. And then eventually um, um, down your then, way, some nunnery down your way. And then ended way. up in a nunnery in Brighton. Yeah. And uh, like I say, yeah, they moved to Wrexham, I think it was, in North yeah. Wales. Now, here's the interesting theory from Kate Summerskill. She wonders if Samuel Kent had congenital syphilis, which mm. he gave to his wife and was inherited by his children. Hence his first wife losing four infants, both wives dying early, and the apparent madness of his first wife. Constance and William both had physical symptoms. They had what were called... Hutchinson teeth, which were notches on their incisors, which is a symptom of congenital syphilis inherited from, from the family. So maybe there's a madness in the family after all, after us dismissing right. the idea of uh, uh, the first Mrs. Kent being locked up for madness. Maybe it was something maybe, that she had yeah. got from her husband's dalliances. Yeah, I mean, the law um, of averages is some of these women were mad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just wanted to point out that it could just as easily have been that she was, you know, cross. Yeah. But then when everyone had forgotten about it in 1865, that's five years after the murder, 21-year-old Constance Kent walks into a London police station with a vicar and confessed that it was her all along. Dun, wow. Dun, dun. She'd been in this religious order in Brighton. She'd come up for a day trip to London, a bit shopping, see, <laughs> see a show, show. confess to a famous murder. Um, who hasn't done that on a Saturday? Should we pop up to town? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she came with uh, Reverend Arthur Wagner, the Anglo-Catholic clergyman, who she confessed a couple of weeks earlier. And um, he wouldn't give the police any further details because of the sacramental confession. So this was quite a big deal because they yeah. going, well, you've got to tell us what she said. This is a, this is a murder. You know, it, was done, it was done in the sanctity of the church and you know, that's, Priest, her privacy must be respected. Fruition of uh, privilege. Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. But... Uh, Luckily, because her confession was not withdrawn and she was pleading guilty, he wasn't called to give evidence. But there was a lot of stuff in the newspapers about whether the sanctity of the confession could be upheld in this case. Yeah, whether it be tested, that could have been the first yeah. sort of test of that ancient Yeah, exactly. Principle. If you look it up, this case up now, it's quite a lot, lot of the discussion is about this point of political mm. principle. Constance Kent was sentenced to death 
but that was commuted to life because of her youth at the time of the crime. She was 16 and her mm. confession and her piety now. She worked on mosaics, didn't she? And one of them's yeah. in the crypt at St Paul's Cathedral. Um, yes. And there's another mosaic she did which featured a sort of cherubic, 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 that featured a cherubic young boy, which people say might be the half-brother that she murdered. Yes. Which is, yeah. Sad. Sad. So uh, after 20 years, she moved to Australia following her brother. She changed her name and she lived to the age of 100. 100. Yeah, she died. It was 1944, wasn't it? She died. That's amazing. Yeah. And in the 1920s, a man who had published a book about the murder got a very long letter from Australia with many more details, very vivid and accurate, talking about the oh. family and the suffering this child had undergone, which was clearly from her. Inspector Witcher was vindicated, but it was too late. Yeah, and did Anne Widdicombe say, John, you got it right and I was wrong? No, she didn't. <laughs> did Anne Widdicombe and I stay lifelong friends, Angela? No, we didn't. Aww. Did I end up doing a series of lighthearted history podcasts with Anne Widdicombe? No, she turned me down, Angela. And that's why I'm here. <laughs> you just wanted to do a history podcast with someone with a connection to Maidstone. That was your that only was criteria, that was it. That, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's a fascinating case. I think it's uh, it's been made popular by uh, Kate Summerschool's book, but I hadn't heard of it when I was turned up to do this thing in you know 20 years ago. It's a TV house. series as well. It's on Amazon Prime, The Suspicious yes. Mr. Witcher, with Paddy, um, what's his Constantine, name? Constantine, very fine actor. As, as, very fine the, actor. as Mr. Witcher. Yes, yeah. but it, what it did is it lifted the lid on the respectable Victorian home. It showed that there was infidelity, mm. there was deceit, there was bullying. There syphilis. Was syphilis. <laughs> you name it, it's in there. <laughs> and, um, you know, as we say, I think uh, a thousand country house murder mysteries were spawned mm. and the detective became uh, sort of an, a, a, a folk hero and a, a great subject for writers ever since. Yeah, and let's not forget, you know, the little boy. Little Savile Kent, I don't think we ever named him. No, we didn't, did we? How awful. Savile Savile Kent is... um... Who knows what he might have gone on to achieve in his life, but he was uh, brutally murdered by a mad 16-year-old girl who was uh, furious at her stepmother and wanted Mm. not to kill the stepmother because it would be too quick. She wanted her to suffer more, and so this is Mm. the, the means by which she decided in her madness to do it. Grim story, but a very interesting one, I think. Yeah. Um, read Kate Summerskill's book. Watch the detective series if you want to pay. I think you have to pay on YouTube or something, don't you? To watch uh, it? On Amazon Prime, I think it is. It? is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, um, it's only the first episode that's about this particular story. Oh, is it? Okay. And uh, we'll be back next week to do more traditional political, social... <laughs> or maybe we won't. Maybe, maybe we won't. John's <laughs> just <laughs> remembered what the topic of the next one is. Even, even more off point. <laughs> This is next week, it's how to get the most out of your new Henry Hoover. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't forget to um, tweet us. We're on at We Are History Pod on Twitter. Um, keep in touch. We like hearing from you. And, and, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, keep listening. Thanks Yay. a lot. See we'll you catch time. you next week on We Are History. Bye. <laughs>